It's great to have your company. This is LifeWords Q&A with Andrew Morris and David Ray. David is the author of our daily devotional called LifeWords. And it's a 20-minute chat, if you like, where we talk about the intersection of life and faith. And this week, we're looking at another three questions, um, looking at the mistakes and inconsistencies in the Bible. And should that be a real hindrance or a bother to us? Also, uh, the unforgivable sin. What is it? And finally, when we pray for the sick, why do some get healed and some don't? David, thanks again for joining us for LifeWords Q&A. Thank you, Andrew. Good to be here. Excellent. Uh, let's start with the first question, and that's how come there are so many mistakes and inconsistencies in the Bible? Shouldn't the Word of God be free of these mistakes? Well, I think this question assumes that God has to have his Word without mistakes or inconsistencies. Now, now I mean... Some people might immediately protest and say mistakes, inconsistencies, no such thing in the Bible. Well, actually, no, I'd have to disagree with that. Uh, those who've studied the Bible well and who have a very high regard for its authority as the Word of God will acknowledge that there are some mistakes and inconsistencies um, in the Bible. You see, I, I think, let me say that I think there are mistakes and inconsistencies in the Bible, um, and yet I still believe the Bible is the infallible Word of God. So how do those two marry together? It's like this. The Bible itself says that it will tell people how to get right with God and how to live His way. The Bible says that. Uh, it'll show you the way of salvation, and it'll show you how to live as a saved person. So I can safely assume it won't make any mistakes about that. God won't fail to do that very thing. But I don't think the Bible itself ever claims to reflect our own 21st century standards of reporting or of scientific observation or knowledge. I, I don't think the Word of God was ever meant to do all that, so I don't think we should hold it to our particular standards. So in other words, um, yeah, there can be mistakes and inconsistencies, but not in the areas where the Bible really matters, which is in turn about bringing us to relationship with God and helping us to live out that relationship. So, David, uh, I guess we should look at you know how the Bible was created. It's not just one book written by one person. It's in fact a number of uh, it's a collection of stories, a collection of books and accounts of the New Testament of Jesus's life, and then in the Old Testament of life in the BC times, and they're being compiled, haven't they? Yes, they're compiled by many different people, all of whom, or I should say, none of whom has got our what we call 21st century scientific mindset. We can't blame them for that. They didn't live in our time. Um, and yes, they were writing down um, their recollection of events um, well after um, uh, the events happened. And in some cases, of course, they weren't there when it happened. Um, but also, um, these people were writing, perhaps uh, recording different things from different perspectives. The gospel writers will record um, some of Jesus' uh, works and words from one perspective and another perspective. So they aren't all writing the same thing. And the other thing, uh, just following on from that, Andrew, is that the Bible not only consists of different books, but it consists of different literary types. So, for example, if you read the book of Revelation, it reads very differently from the book of Acts. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy, it reads very different from the book of Psalms, for example. They're different literary types. And I don't think it's fair to say, well, uh, to expect the poetry of the Psalms to be literal truth. The hills don't literally clap their hands. But then again, when we read the gospel narratives, this is historical narrative. And we can certainly trust what the gospel writers are saying about the events of 
the crucial events of Jesus' life. So when I say the Bible is of different literary types and therefore we can't always take it literalistically because certain types aren't meant to be taken like that, um, it doesn't mean to say we don't take it uh, seriously or we don't regard it as the Word of God. The Word of God has been conveyed to us in various literary types written by people in the ancient Near East and it seems to me that God is quite happy and content with that. If he wanted to give us a 21st century textbook about biology, anthropology, geology, astronomy, whatever, I'm sure he could have done that. He hasn't. I guess one criticism I think, you know, if we've ever spoken to people who who doubt the uh, the existence of God and, and the, the questionable quality of the Bible, David, is... You know, it's just a it's a bunch of stories and, and Genesis, you can't be serious that God you believe that God created the world in six days. And I guess I mean the, the Christian world is I, I guess divided on whether creation is literal, but then one perspective is that it's again it's it's a metaphorical story, isn't it? Well, yeah, um, you're right. Some Christians do argue that, say, for example, the early chapters of the book of Genesis are to be taken in that literal historical sense of the word. Uh, and uh, other Christians uh, feel very, very strongly that that's not the case. It very much depends on how you view the nature of the Bible. If, for example, you think that the Bible is simply recording in those early chapters the very fact that God made the world and it is a poetic retelling of that story by whoever the writer of Genesis was, then uh, you've got no, no problems with seeing it as metaphor. Then again, other Christians feel that if you uh, take it as metaphor, when the whole structure of the Bible comes collapsing around about you. Now, I actually don't agree with that. I think you can take certain parts of the Bible as metaphor. Um, you can take certain parts of the Bible non-literally and still hold it as the infallible word of God because God is conveying what he wanted to convey. Now, if we can get deeply into the mind of God and say that God really did want to give us a scientific, thorough um, account of how the world was made, then uh, I guess you'd have to take Genesis 1 to 3 literalistically. But then again, if you feel that all that God was trying to do is to convey the fact that he's, he was behind it all and that there was a purpose behind the creation of the world and so on, well, you don't need to take it literalistically. Can we have a look at the New Testament? and say the parables of Jesus and, mm. the, you know, to have the faith to move a mountain and, and all the different other parables that he spoke about. Uh, of course, those parables are to tell a truth, aren't they? Yeah, the parables tell the truth, but obviously the, 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 the truth of the parable of the Good Samaritan doesn't depend on whether there was actually a Good Samaritan. Uh, and many of the parables do convey or do contain uh, uh, metaphors, such as the parable of Dives and Lazarus about you know people in heaven being in Abraham's bosom and all that sort of thing. Uh, so they, they, they contain metaphors. And I don't think anyone's really expecting them to be taken fully literally because Jesus speaking to a particular audience who understood metaphor and understood parable and uh, understood the imagery he was using. So if we try to force them into a literalistic mould in order to conform to our standards of what we think is historically accurate, I think we might be misreading the parables. And we misread Jesus' own teaching. Jesus often used exaggeration, moving a mountain. Um, it was who, who on earth would want to move a mountain? But Jesus was using an exaggeration. A camel through the eye of a needle. He's using a humorous exaggeration. We're not meant to take that literally. He's telling people to gouge their eye out or chop off their left hand if it offends. 
he's using a, a metaphor, an exaggeration to say, hey, this is a serious issue. So when we try to force the Bible into conforming to what we believe as our standards of truth and infallibility, I think we might make a mistake uh, because the Bible is of many different literary types uh, and, and it will have, yes, mistakes and inconsistencies. And one reason, which we haven't covered but just touched on, is that uh, our present Bible is the product of many translators who have looked at um, manuscripts, which we've got no original manuscripts. There's no one has ever discovered any of the original manuscripts of the Bible. Uh, and so the work of translation and um, preserving the Bible um, means that there's going to be some imprecision because of look, you look at the different versions of the Bible. There are different translations of different verses. None of them affects the infallible word of God in terms of showing us the way of salvation and how to live for God. But there are significant differences. And again, I just say, well, God has preserved an infallible word through his Holy Spirit, and God doesn't seem to be too worried about all the debates that sometimes preoccupy us about the Bible. So to, to finally wind up this question, David, when we read the Bible, how should we go about it? So like we, we need to take in the context of when it was written, the culture of the time, and maybe what draw out what God is trying to say through that passage. How, how would you tell me, when I'm trying to learn and study the Bible, how should I approach a passage in the Bible? Well, yes, it is an ancient... First of all, you are you are reading an ancient Near Eastern text. And if I can say it, that, that when Paul wrote, say, the letter to the Ephesians, he was not writing to you. He didn't know you existed. He didn't even know that you would exist. He was writing to the people at Ephesus. And so... Our task is to lift from what Paul has written to those people at Ephesus and see now what abiding principles are there, what things are, are very relevant for us uh, today. The people in Ephesus were battling issues that we wouldn't battle, but there's a lot of commonality there. And so what you need is, you need, number one, the help of God's Holy Spirit, because if God has given us this word in an ancient Near Eastern context, I jolly well would assume that he's giving us the tools through the Holy Spirit to interpret into our own day and make it meaningful. You need the help of the Holy Spirit, but you need the help of the Holy Spirit, I think, working through wise and trusted Christian teachers, who you may well find in your church, um, uh, literary resources, um, uh, video DVD resources, people who study the scripture well. If you can find people who study the scripture well and have a high regard for it, they can teach you a lot of things. They, 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 they can help you to avoid some of the traps that you might find if you're only undergoing private interpretation. But at the same time, it, while, while we, I think what I've just said, it seems to make the Bible a very complex book, paradoxically, it's also very straightforward uh, because God has not made it just for super intellects. But we do need to work on it. And some people who, who tend to see the Bible, I think, too simplistically seem to regard it as, oh, well, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It is always self-evident what it is saying. It's not. Sometimes we have to work very hard and sometimes after working very hard on the text, we still disagree about it. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A with David Ray. Hi, I'm Andrew Morris. If you want to send us a question and you're thinking, mm, that's just created a question for me, I want to know about uh, the New Jerusalem, well, you can email us. Our email address is lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. Our second question, and this is a really interesting one. I know when I was a new Christian, I worried about this day and night. I get very worried, David, that I might commit the unforgivable sin, but I'm not even sure what it is. Help. 
Well, look, I think, Andrew, the simplest response to that, and that certainly has been put to me a number of times by people, if you're worried you've committed the unforgivable sin, I can assure you, you haven't. Because, you see, now, let me, let me explain that. Some people think the unforgivable sin is something terribly bad, as if Jesus died for our sins, but there's a little bit of fine print there, an exclusion clause somewhere down there um, at the foot of the cross to say, well, Jesus died for these particular sins, but there's some particularly bad ones that he hasn't died for. No, that is not the case at all. There is no fine print. There is no exclusion clause. Jesus died for each and every sin we have committed, are committing, will commit. So, Yet Jesus does say, does he not, um, that if you commit the unforgivable sin, that's a, that's a big problem. But look at the context. When Jesus speaks of this unforgivable sin, he's referring to something called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And in the context in which he uses that phrase, I think he's talking about people deliberately denying what the Holy Spirit was saying about Jesus. For example, some of the people who were with Jesus at the time that he said that were saying, this man's got a demon. This man's doing all this work and it's demonic. Well, what they're really doing is, a tr- is, is, is confusing Jesus and Satan, as it were. Um, it's denying that Jesus is Saviour. Now, if we do this, then of course we're beyond salvation. The unforgivable sin is to refuse to accept the offer of salvation made by our Saviour. And the unforgivable sin is basically saying, Jesus, you are not my Saviour. So, David, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that possibly that someone who rejects Jesus as, as their Lord and Saviour is committing the unforgivable sin? Not quite, because there's something else to be said about this unforgivable sin business. And that is, um, uh, you, you, as it were, have to reject his offer of salvation until your very dying breath. Because, you know, to say that anyone who rejects Jesus has committed the unforgivable sin, well, that's, that's, that's nonsense because every simple, simple human being on earth in one sense has rejected Jesus at some stage. And there are people we might know and love very much who are presently saying a stubborn no to Jesus. And please don't jump to the conclusion that they've committed the unforgivable sin because anyone who rejects Jesus can in fact uh, repent of that and come back to Jesus and thus receive salvation. So my point there is that that there may well be people who are rejecting Jesus who, in fact, that becomes the unforgivable sin. But we don't know. We don't know because, you see, we can make no judgments about who may be guilty of this sin because only those who deny Jesus till their last breath are guilty of it. And you and I can never know who those people are. All we can say is that some people seem to be denying Jesus. And in that case, we they could be in big trouble because if they go on doing that till the day they die, they have committed the unforgivable sin, which is not a particularly bad sin above all others so much, but rather a denial of the possibility of salvation by rejecting the offer made by the Saviour Jesus. So anyone who reckons they're worried about having committed the unforgivable sin, I'd say, no, your conscience is still active. And if you are a Christian, well, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Obviously, you've come to Jesus who forgives all your sins. If you're not a Christian and you feel as though you've committed the unforgivable sin, I'd want to say, well, 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 if you persist in this attitude of rejection to Jesus through your last dying breath, well, in fact, by definition, you have. But hey, um, don't persist in that rejection. So in summary, David, if I've um, been frustrated 
in my journey of uh, following Jesus, and I've let him uh, let, let I guess ripped ripped into him and had a go at Jesus and God in prayer or just yelling out at him in anger. That's not necessarily grieving the Holy Spirit or committing the unforgivable sin. No, look, look. in one sense, it's grieving the Holy Spirit in the sense that the Holy Spirit wouldn't necessarily approve of those sorts of things. But look, no, it, it, we've got to get out of this head any idea that we've done a particularly bad thing or we've let Jesus down particularly badly, therefore we're beyond hope. That makes the cross um, very secondary. Uh, it means as though Jesus is only forgiving the respectable sins or the minor sins. No such thing. I mean, Jesus has covered absolutely everything. And yes, while we do commit terrible sins that will grieve God, we are not blaspheming against the Spirit if we are still open to the Spirit's conviction. And that Spirit says, hey, you have committed that sin and we come to God again for forgiveness and mercy. And of course, yes, it's forgiven. Thanks for shedding some light on that one. If you've got a question for David, please email us, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. That's lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. We'd love to uh, have a tackle of your question. Now, finally, for today's episode, when we pray for the sick, why do some people get healed and some don't? Is it a problem with my faith or their faith? Or is it just God's will that people stay sick, David? Andrew, that, I'd, I'd love to know. I'd love to know the answer to that question myself. Um, uh, uh, let me say, I speak as someone who's been involved in healing ministry within any church I've been involved with, because I think it's a vital part of um, the church's ministry, and I don't want to sideline it or dismiss it. Um, you see, my, I think our issue is this: if no one got healed, uh, or if everyone got healed, we wouldn't have this problem. I think the problem is that that we see some healing happen and some healing not. Um, I guess the bottom line for this is, and I might seem to be avoiding the, the answer to the question here, but the bottom line is, why do I pray for people who are sick? Because they have asked me to pray and they want to get better. And compassion and sheer, even I might say common sense dictates that if someone is sick and asks for prayer for healing, well then, of course I pray for healing. I mean, I'm not going to pray that they stay sick. Uh, so it's it's pretty logical, I think, to go on praying for healing for people, even though we don't know if everyone is going to get better. I mean, I don't know whether everyone I pray for is going to get converted to Christ, but it doesn't stop me praying for them. I mean, so I think we pray out of obedience and out of compassion. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all prayed for someone. I prayed for my mum. She suffered a... Uh, a variety of illnesses and you know I had I tried to muster the faith and we'll get onto that issue and I was very confused you know I thought God would heal her and stuff and, and that didn't happen but then we've seen other people be healed as well yeah. so the role of faith David uh, because it is mentioned in the Bible Jesus mentions mm. the word faith when you're praying for people and he, and he he also asked people when he prayed for them do you have the faith to be healed mm. How, what role does faith have and why does yeah what role does faith have in healing well we've got to be careful first of all not to dismiss the role of faith or not to overplay it either there was one interesting episode in the gospels where um, a man was wanting prayer for his son assuming the son seemed to have a form of epilepsy and um, and Jesus asked asked him about faith and so on and the man said I believe help my unbelief um, not a great 
triumphalistic sort of faith, was it? But Jesus didn't say, oh, sorry, not enough faith there, mate. Not going to heal your little boy. He went straight in and healed him, even though the man had some unbelief as well as belief. And Jesus elsewhere, when his disciples were saying, please, please increase our faith. Jesus more or less answers, he says, wrong question. Don't increase your faith in terms of uh, a quantitative sense. Uh, because he said, he said, if you've got faith as much as a mustard seed, you can move mountains or heal people and so on and so on. So Jesus seems to be saying faith is important. Uh, yes, yes, some faith is necessary, but please don't try to measure it. Um, psyching ourselves up to have more faith is, is, is not helpful. I would say come to God with the faith you have and let him get to work on it, rather than trying to work yourself up to faith before you come. In other words, in terms of healing, say, God, I haven't got a lot of faith. I'm sick or my friend's sick. I haven't got a lot of faith. But I reckon if you pray to God for healing, that in itself is an expression of faith. So don't beat yourself over the head for not having enough faith. How on earth do you define enough? I think if you've got faith enough, to simply cry out to God for help, even admitting, as the man in the Gospels did, admitting there's some unbelief and doubts there, I think God will get to work on that. God's not sitting in heaven folding his arms with pursed lips saying, uh, listen here, people, um, smart, smarten your faith up. Uh, your, your, your child will stay sick and die if you don't um, get your faith in order. I, I don't think he does that. Uh, God's not like that. So faith matters, um, but don't overplay it to the point of saying I've got to have super duper duper faith because God seems to have responded to the rather weak faith of individuals and let's face it all our faith is inevitably weak because we're human Healing and the healing ministry and uh, the role of healing has sort of come back since, I guess, the 70s with uh, John Wimber and his uh, book Supernatural Healing. Then you've got people like uh, John White and Ken Plew and Sydney's uh, the late uh, Jim Glennon have all uh, practiced and a variety of different denominations. Um, they've all written books, David, with their, their own thoughts on the way to healing. Yes, we want to know how to pray for the sick, but we can often make it a little too complicated, having to go through hoops and go around that and do this and do that. And, yeah, like, are we making it too complicated sometimes? Oh, oh yes, I think no doubt. Uh, one of the problems you've got, and I've read many of those books you mentioned, uh, one of the problems with those books, and I'm not knocking those books at all, they're, they're, they can be very helpful in their own way, but they often uh, they can often implicitly suggest that, uh, well, um, do things my way, and um, it'll work. Now, none of those writers, may I say, is silly or arrogant enough to have said that. No. But as we read those books, um, and I use my own example here. I've read some of those books, and I've been as I've been praying for people who are sick, I'm thinking, now, wait a minute, what did Wimber say or Blues say in Chapter 4 of their book or and this sort of thing? And you think, oh, no, look, I don't want to simply resort to a technique, but these books can actually help you give... Uh, give you some overall principles that might help. But look, in the end, praying for someone who is sick is not all that complex. Um, do they do they want to get better? What do they want prayer for? You pray for them that they would be healed and leaving it up to God, um, just how he chooses to um, answer that prayer. So I wouldn't overcomplicate it. Mind you, we are aware that some people who are physically sick 
there can be underlying issues in their lives which can in fact um, um, influence that sickness because well, you know it doesn't need a Christian to say that many of our illnesses are psychosomatic we, we, we there is an interrelationship between what's happening in our body and what's happening in our mind and heart so yes it's not it's not rocket science to pray for someone who is sick but a wise person who prays for the sick might well want to to helpfully explore with that person, if they're willing to do so, of course, um, other dimensions of life. Yes, you've come with this particular problem. Uh, is there is there other things we ought to be praying for in your life as well? Now, that's not to be nosy or, or snoopy or overcomplex, but it's really to treat the person as a whole person, not just as a body and a bodily symptom. And as I say, look, a wise doctor, a wise counsellor, a wise psychologist. They'll do that, irrespective of uh, whether they're Christian or not. I think there's a, a wide body of work, both in the Christian world and the mainstream world now, that things of, like, uh, I guess, anger, anxiety and stress are playing a role in our physical well-being. Uh, purely, it can have an effect on your stomach and your anxiety, uh, uh, your, your immune system. So I think there's a wide evidence that those kind of things... So, I mean, I guess what you're saying, David, is, you know, if it's obvious that, that you've got the... the uh, the, the, got an anger issue towards somebody that that could be possibly playing a role in your well-being. Indeed. So, I mean, but, you know, if, you, if it's not obvious, then possibly it's not the cause of the oh, issue. Oh, yes, look, I mean, you, don't, you don't go digging around. Yeah. I mean, this is where in the book of James, when the um, uh, James says, look, let, let leaders of the church come and pray for you if you're sick. And one of the reasons is, and, and then he talks about confession of sins in that context, which is interesting, uh, because it may be that if you're sick and you need prayer, that some very wise Christian friends, uh, they don't have to be professional counsellors, but wise Christian friends can gently sort of start exploring your life and say, now, is there anything you need to raise so that we can do with you as a whole person? But no, don't go digging around. You can't say, oh, you've got a sore back. Oh, come on, you must be angry. Come on, come on, yeah. come on, you know, um, um, spit it all out sort of thing. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is the one who will bring things to light. And if the person brings things to light, we pray for that as well as the physical ailment. This 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 topic could go on uh, over multiple episodes, David. But um, one of the things you quickly um, went over was uh, Jesus, and the question that he asked often asked people was, "Do you want to get better?" Is that is that an important question to consider if you're you know like I guess some people get attuned or used to their their ailment, their sickness. Yes, they they get an identity as a victim, um, and some people um, may. Uh, in one sense want to get better but in another sense have found it um, they've become so used to their illness that uh, it's the only reality and it almost becomes the identifying reality of their lives and so therefore um, sadly in a few cases there may be people who really don't want to get better um, so it's always I think wise to ask a sick person now now um, I did this with someone just the other day I said I said now now how do you want me to pray for you uh, in a healing service? And the person said, well, I, I want to be healed of this, that and the other, and that's fine. If the person says, no, I don't want to be healed, or if they're just going to talk about it forever and have no desire to be healed, well, I think that indicates there could be a deeper issue. Um, uh, because, yes, some people do befriend their illnesses and get identity from it, and if they were healed from it, they wouldn't know what to do. But having said that, we've got to be 
absolutely clear that 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 that's not true. Even perhaps the majority of people who desperately yeah. want to get sick. There was no way in the world I'm suggesting there's some sick people listening out there, and uh, really it's all your fault. No, I'm not saying that at all. But they, it it can be the case of a few people that 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 they have got a situation in their lives where they think, well, the sickness is so much part of me that uh, I'm not really um, motivated to um, pray for healing. David, thanks so much for spending some time with us today on LifeWords Q&A. Look, we could talk about that topic and all the topics today a lot longer. We will continue to discuss some, some of these issues around healing and, and those kind of things in future episodes. If you do have a question specific to any, any of these or any other question, email us lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. David Ray, we'll speak to you next time. Thank you.